Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hey, maybe remember at the end of American Graffiti, you wish there was more? Well, there is! It's more American Graffiti! What's me, you idiot? Ah, come on, all you big strong men, Uncle hey, Sam. They're older and wiser, and just as crazy. It's all here, all right. Uncle Sam says, I need the toad. Terry the Toads in Vietnam. Steve and Lori are happily married. Debbie's different. Pregnant. I'm in love. John Milner's the same. I'm John Milner, the owner-driver of this car here, and this is our team t-shirt. I'd be deeply honored if you wore it. She made Italians, Nikon for something. She's a foreigner, John. My last shirt, too. American Graffiti, the bittersweet times, the crazy times, and all of it unforgettable. A man is not a housewife, a woman is a housewife. Ron Howard. I'm having a party tonight, and my mother loved being a housewife, and my mother loved being a mother, and I'm coming to pick you up right now, do you understand that? Cindy Williams. Two, your wife is a cow, your mother's a hog. Charlie Martin Smith. What's the matter? I broke my leg. Some guy's got all the luck. Paul Lamatt. A little twerp. Mackenzie Phillips. Twerp me, John. I've grown. A little bit. Candy Clark. I think it was a fire hydrant. We don't know something. Use Carlisle. Bo Hopkins. You sell them, we steal them. They're all back and more. With the new stars of the 80s. Telling the story of the 60s. American Graffiti. And watch out. The old wolf man go be there too. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Terry Frost. Yeah, hi, Mike. Um, yeah, looking forward to this one because it's outside my usual thing and it's a movie I haven't visited for a while, so I'm kind of looking forward to talking about it. Also back in the booth is Mr. Trevor Gumble. Hey, Mike. Good to be back on the show. It's been a it's been a couple of years. Um, yeah, I'm really excited about this one too. This this one, I'll have a lot to say. 
On this special episode of The Projection Booth, we are looking at More American Graffiti. Released in 1979, the film was directed by Bill Norton and reunites most of the original cast of George Lucas's 1973 film, Save for Richard Dreyfus. Rather than looking at a single night in the lives of our four main characters, the film looks at four periods of time, New Year's Eve, across the lives of five main characters. We plan on ruining this movie as we talk about it, so if you haven't seen it, check it out. We will still be here. Now, Terry, when was the first time you saw more American Graffiti, and what did you think? It was during my misspent youth. I saw it in the cinemas because I'd seen American Graffiti when it came out because I'm older than Oxygen. I liked the music a lot because uh, finding compilations of 60s music was a little difficult at times here, so I, I kind of made a list and I could then reference the soundtrack and, and get the soundtrack and have access to a lot of these movies. Uh, a lot of the music, sorry. What did you think of it when you saw it? Trying to think back all those centuries. Uh, I enjoyed it. I think that it's definitely a slightly lesser film than the first one in some ways, but I think it's a, nice to revisit some of these characters. Other ones I had some problems with, but revisiting... Some of the characters was a lot of fun. How about you, Trevor? Actually, I just watched it uh, fairly recently. I've been kind of hesitant because the first one is is so is special and near and dear to my heart that it kind of don't want to ruin it with a sequel that has been known to be a little inferior. But I sucked it up and I watched it, and it's not as bad as I feared it would be. I enjoyed parts of it. It's definitely got some really good stuff in it but but you're right it's it it is very a lesser to the first one but still both soundtracks are are excellent for the uh for the time i think that was on the poster not as bad as you thought it might be yeah i think that was roger ebert's quote i so backed into american graffiti i probably said this when we were talking about star wars like finding out that george lucas had done other things and i grew up as a very faithful watcher of both Laverne and Shirley and Happy Days, especially Happy Days. So going back and seeing a movie that was directed by George Lucas and that had Richie Cunningham and Shirley Feeney in it, but playing different roles, but kind of the same. They're in the 50s, but they are going out and then it's a little more risque and all this kind of stuff. I was just completely thrown when I saw it the first time, but really grew to love American Graffiti. And then I caught part of more American Graffiti on TV, and it must have just been the war protest part that had, I don't want to say Richie Cunningham, that had Ron Howard and Cindy Williams in it. And you cannot just jump into the middle of this movie or come in three quarters of the way through the movie because it just doesn't work that way. You can't do it. I had trouble following the timeline while I was watching it because it was very random. It's like, okay, wait, now we're in this. Wait, what year is this now? Oh, wait, now we're back to the war. For, oh, wait, are we in the same timeline? I mean, it kind of frazzled my head a little bit trying to figure out what was going on at what time in what you know scene. Yeah, it's, I think I got the hang of it fairly okay. It was hard to follow, but still reasonably yeah, I think those changes in aspect ratios made it a little bit easy for me. You get the widescreen one with the hippie stuff. You get, well, no, sorry, the widescreen one is with the protest stuff. The um, kind of Thomas Crown Affair little square look is for the hippie stuff. And then you get a television aspect ratio for the Vietnam stuff. And that kind of helped me through those transitions. 
I did appreciate the different uh, aspect ratios, almost like different types of filmmaking. Um, mm. Like I noticed uh, the, the Vietnam stuff is very much kind of documentary style. Yeah, the protests were very – it kind of reminded me like of scenes I've seen of other films of the counterculture, like the strawberry something. The strawberry statement. For the scenes I've seen of that film, I definitely saw a little bit of inspiration in that with the Vietnam protests. There are a whole bunch of movies like that. Uh, Tarantino's talked about the move with Elliot Gould, um, a whole bunch of protest movies, which I think did it a lot better than this one did. Yeah, I think it was actually getting straight, that move, because move is just this really fucking trippy movie. I love it. Yeah, getting straight. I apologize for that. I keep getting my hippie Elliot Gould movies mixed up. It's very easy to do. Well, as long as the movie you don't get mixed up is The Dead Men Don't Die. <laughs> Ooh, that's a bad one. Yeah, the first couple times I saw more American Graffiti, it was really confusing. It took me, I think it was like the third or fourth time before it finally clicked. And then I was like, okay, you know, it does have those changes in aspect ratio. It does have those changes in filmmaking styles. And then really, it just goes one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. We never go one, three, two, four, anything else. It is just one after another, after another, after another, though it starts off very, you know, and they even give you the years, which is kind of nice as well. So we start off in 1964. We are there December 31st, 1964. And that is the John Milner story. But we start off with getting all four, five of our main characters introduced. So we've got like I said, everybody with Richard Dreyfus. So we have uh, Cindy Williams back as Lori. We've got Ron Howard back as Steve. We've got Charles Martin Smith as Terry. We've got Candy Clark as Debbie. And then we have Paul Lamont as John Milner. And we start with all of them in 1964, and then the story fragments off of there. And then we go 65, we are with Terry. 66 is Debbie, and then 67 is Lori and Steve. And so we get to see how the decade of the 60s fragments, as well as the friendships of these people, as well as just the world becoming a much larger place than the one city that we were in, in the original American Graffiti. And then, like I said, it's just one, two, three, four, and it's kind of confusing me to me a little bit that the Terry story seems like it would take weeks to go through. I mean, if not months, but it is supposed to all be one day. Some of the other ones, it's like, okay, yeah, this is one day or one afternoon. Like the Debbie story could easily fit in one afternoon. The Stephen Laurie thing really feels like it's happening in one afternoon. They're fighting about a party that they're having that night. But yeah, the Terry stuff just seems to go on. Like, not, I don't want to say forever, but it seems like it would take a long time to establish the arc that he goes through. Were this movie to be made now, if somebody decided to, I think they may have done all of those changes in look using different color grading. I think that may have been a way to do it. And keeping the directorial style changes. Those two things might have been better to do as an option, were an option available in those days, and I'm fairly sure that they weren't. Well, in 79, we were already using like color flashing and stuff. We've already had McCabe and Mrs. Miller. So we're doing some stuff. But yeah, you're right. I totally agree with you that they're not doing it enough to really let us know that. Maybe, I mean, you saw it in a theater, and I'm curious if that, you know, if you can remember 
when in 79 when this came out how that was for you but now watching it on a video or or dvd or blu-ray it's like okay this all looks really good and i think like the vietnam stuff is supposed to look kind of crappy it confused me slightly at the time because i wasn't as knowledgeable about film as i am now I don't know about lookup tables and all those other things, the color grade stuff and the process of editing and all that kind of thing, which I'm starting to get into with my YouTube channel. But I think one of the reasons why they didn't do it better is this movie had only a $3 million budget and that limitation amongst others shows in the movie, like that bit with the helicopters at the start, which is them trying to do a budget apocalypse now kind of thing. Southern California does not look a lot like Vietnam, and going up a river in Southern California does not look like going up a river in Vietnam. Yeah, it really reminded me of uh, the Hughes Brothers' Dead Presidents, where it's just like, you're shooting this in Vietnam, and it looks like somebody's backyard. Although when the helicopters are, are flying, I have expected them to use Fortunate Son, like every other war Or Flood of the Valkyries, yeah. Yeah, because as I was watching, I'm like, Okay, George, you didn't do Apocalypse Now. This is this your way of telling Francis Ford Coppola, "Hey, I could do this too." The Toad stuff was actually very interesting, but yeah, you're right. It was very kind of rushed for something that only was supposed to take place within a day or two. The, the first scene with him in Vietnam, the tone was kind of. I found the tone kind of weird because he's trying to like get injured so he could go home, right? But you know, they start shooting at him and they play it like it's a comedy. When I think to myself. You know, they're firing so many bullets at him, I'm surprised nothing has hit him. There is no way for him to die. They're playing it off like it's this humorous comedic thing, and it, it just seemed kind of off tone-wise. Yeah, it seems to be a little bit like Apocalypse Now meets Catch-22 in a way. Yeah, he gets fired upon, they dump all this armaments on him, and he walks away with just a little scratch on his hand, and that's the only thing he can show to his CO, like, oh, I got injured. The CO um, played by... Richard Bradford. Yeah, was he the same one that was in the Billy Jean who played the the bike shop owner? That's what I recognized him from. I don't know what that says about me, but he was also in a couple of other things. He was in Sunset with Bruce Willis playing a cop and getting his nose broken, and he was also in a good nineteen sixties English spy series called Man with the Suitcase. Before we even get too farther into this, we should probably say that when you watch more American graffiti, you might think to yourself, how can this movie even exist? Because we are told at the end of American graffiti, what happens to our four main male characters. And we're told John Milner was killed by a drunk driver in December, 1964. Terry Fields was uh, reported missing in action uh, near Ann Lock in December, 1965. Steve is an insurance salesman living in Modesto and Kurt Henderson is a writer living in Canada, where what I assume is that he wrote stand by me, because I think that was him in the Rob Reiner film. Chris did get out. He enrolled in the college courses with me. And although it was hard, he gutted it out like he always did. He went on to college and eventually became a lawyer. Last week, he entered a fast food restaurant. Just ahead of him, two men got into an argument. One of them pulled a knife. Chris, who had always made the best piece, tried to break it up. He was stabbed in the throat. He died almost instantly. I found it interesting that they actually made all of that stuff work, that they managed to. Now, the Kurt stuff, yeah, Laurie's got a line, like, my brother's living in Canada. Steve is an insurance salesman. That's not too much of a stretch. But the whole idea of we're going to keep 
true to the Terry and John stuff was very interesting that they could actually get away with that and make it work for me. For a minute, I thought they were gonna they were gonna retcon the thing. For a, mm. for a brief minute, I'm like, wait, John Miller's doing a lot of races, and they keep he keeps surviving. And wait, are they messing with it? Is he really gonna survive and just be a different timeline, or is is Terry gonna like get sent home or something? Because and then when Debbie says my boyfriend died a year ago today, I'm like, oh wait, wait, is he dead? Or they just assume he's dead because he's missing an action. It does play with the audience a bit, I think. It's like, oh my god, is this a scene where he dies? Is this a scene where he goes missing? In, in that way, yeah. it's kind of, it was kind of not playing fair. Yeah, you've also got to remember there's six years between the two movies coming out in the cinema. So at the time it came out, people would have to remember the characters and the detail of the characters from six years ago. You couldn't watch it on home video. You couldn't, there may have been a bit of stuff in magazines, but it wouldn't have had detailed plots in it. So they could kind of get away with the fuzzy logic there a little bit because human memory isn't quite that precise. Unless you saw it at a repertory theatre just before more American Graffiti came out, you may not have remembered all of those details. This is my memory talking, so it's pretty bad. Because from what I remember of the epilogue, or the yeah epilogue of the end of American Graffiti, I thought Milner was killed in a drag race accident, but I think that was a different movie I was thinking of. The whole movie wondering, like, is this a drag race where he's going to get killed? It might have been just bad memory. And they also put in that bit about um, where they play Jan and Dean's Dead Man Curve while he's preparing for a race. So they tease that a little bit as well. Yeah, I noticed that foreshadowing. They really know what they're doing because especially you were talking about that scene where Debbie says my boyfriend died a year ago. And that's right after we see Terry getting all of that gunfire and all that horribleness being dumped on him. And we don't see him surviving that at the moment. So it's just like, we cut from that basically to her introduction and her scenes. And she's just like, Oh man, I'm really bummed out. It's new year's Eve. My boyfriend died last year. And it's like, Oh shit, he must've died in the last scene. But then they're subverting those expectations. And next thing we know, you know, the Manson family wouldn't have killed uh, Sharon Tate. I really like the multi-camera split screen kind of thing that they're doing with the Debbie story. And it's kind of interesting to me because they're really using it to show the distance between her and her boyfriend, Lance, which maybe he goes off to Vietnam and becomes a surfer. I'm not really sure that there is always... Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers the black bar between them and we don't really ever see them in much of a two shot much less much of a two shot close up and i like too that we're not just doing half and half split screen that we're doing three four that we're doing smaller and larger and i really like that they're playing around with that it's it's to me it's a great effect i can see where it might drive other people crazy but for me i was just like i really like what they're doing here I really like Debbie's story, and I did like how they kind of framed it because, yeah, you're right. There was definitely a separation between her and her and Lance, and 
then when she kind of gets together with Sam, with Scott Glenn's character, it's it's a little more um, in frame with each other. Newt. She turned me into a newt. A newt. Yeah. I do like the way, too, with the split screen and all of that, where they match up different takes really well. There's only one point where I notice there's a different take, because on a reverse shot, you would have seen the camera. Apart from that, it's it's really well done. Yeah, and I know they shot some of that stuff with multiple cameras just to cover it, because otherwise there's just no way. Speaking of the Scott Glenn character, I would pay big money to watch a Scott Glenn, Sam Elliott buddy movie, especially if they both had the same mustaches. Which one am I? The movie. I was surprised at how much I liked the Debbie story, and I was really glad that because in the first movie, she's just kind of a peripheral character. I mean, she's very important to the Terry story, but it's not like she necessarily stands on her own. I always find her to be super interesting just because I love her look and I love what she's doing, and we don't really know what motivates her. And there are times where it seems like she's just kind of using Terry and other times where it seems like she's actually genuinely interested in him. So I was like, well, how is this going to stand alone her without Terry? Not to say that this is some sort of like weird, you know, like a a woman can't stand on her own in a movie, but she really owns that whole section. And that is her story. And I really appreciated that. There's nothing cuter than Candy Clark wearing a top hat with a feather in it. There's definitely, I noticed the difference between the character in, in American Graffiti and Morbid Graffiti. There's definitely been a sense of maturity and a sense of self that she's gained in the interim between the two films. Because her character seems a lot more competent now. Her character seems a lot more... Assertive. Yeah, assertive, yes. She knows yeah. what she wants. Like I said, she's definitely matured. And you could tell that, especially in the first scene you see her and where her and Toad are at Milner's race, you know, there is this love between them that is, it wasn't just a simple woman falling in love with a, a nerd. It was more, you know, there's definitely an affection there because they're both vulnerable people who found each other. Right. And it wasn't just a one night thing that they actually stayed together. And I, I like the fact that in this movie, both Debbie and Laurie find their own agency. They find the kind of best selves in a way. And that's something that wasn't really a theme in late 1970 cinema very much. Yeah, especially the bus scene, which I thought was actually a terrific scene uh, in the film. I enjoyed it, even though it seemed like it kind of skirted the racial issue, because it only really mentions like the racial tensions briefly within the bus scene. But I still appreciated the little it gave me of it, because I thought it was a very good scene. And apparently one of the women on the bus was Naomi Judd. I didn't notice until I read the end credits. Lori's character definitely does have a have an arc to it in the film. Well, let's talk about that Laurie and Steve story, because that one runs the closest, I think, to being in danger of being too shrill and being too trite. But there are moments that really shine through in that story. That was the story I found kind of of all of the of the four plot lines we're following. That was the one I found kind of the least in because. Because sometimes they would play as a fighting couple. It seemed like they sometimes they were playing it for comedy. Sometimes they were playing it for dramatic purpose. The whole Steve telling her not to get a job because she needs to stay home and be the wife. For the 60s, I think it was – I don't know if it was still an issue in the 60s of, of, the, of the women's empowerment. Or I think it was just starting. Yeah, I mean I, I had a problem with that whole sequence. For a start, Ron Howard should never wear a mustache in a movie. Oh, God, no. No, no, that, no. Or, and he had that kind of 1970s Happy Days comb over. Yeah, so they, they put me off anyway. And to be honest with you, I love Ron Howard as a director. I think he's one of the great directors of his age. 
but his acting was incredibly limited. He could only play one type of character, that kind of corn-fed Midwestern white guy kind of thing. He never stretched himself a hell of a lot as an actor. And maybe he didn't get the roles. Maybe he was stereotyped by the studios. Who knows? But he just pissed me off in this. And the other thing I got from that sequence that pissed me off as well, neither of them gives a shit about their kids who go, like, diving for sashimi in the fish tank and all those kind of things. This kid is almost stepping in the fish tank, drowning himself, and yeah. they're just, like, wildly annoyed. Yeah, and there's uh, also that incompetent dad trope, which kind of pisses me off. It's, it's lazy writing in the way. Yeah, it was very lazy. Yeah, those kids were just freaking monsters, and it was just like, they could have a little bit more to them, but they didn't. So when we're away from Ron Howard, when it is just focusing on Lori, then I'm like, okay, I'm happy now. And those moments like where she's picking up the phone and telling him to go fuck himself, I'm just like, okay, cool. I'm happy. But yeah, every time Ron Howard steps on screen, it's just like, ugh. And like, I can see those moments of her, like when she sees the students getting beat and she's, you know, you see the light bulb go off over her head, like, because she's the one who's like, don't bring your draft card. And, you know, the president knows what he's doing and just like really spouting the party line. And it's a little too quick for her to turn around and, and become like, you know, this radical and stuff. But at least she's not like taking off her bra and burning it right there, right after the draft card there. It feels like she has a way to go, but she's kind of started on that path by wanting a job and wanting her own agency. And then seeing the way that the police are beating these people and the way that, you know, the one, one woman slaps that woman on the bus that you're talking about. I mean, that I think is the final moment that really puts her over. That plays a lot more realistically. That character arc for Laurie plays a lot more realistically than the reconciliation with Steve. I don't. I didn't buy that for one second. No, I didn't either. It, it seemed like when Steve said, "Okay, you know what? You you can you can look for a job." I'm like, that was like so last minute. Oh wait, I forgot. I'm supposed to. I'm supposed to mature by the end. Oh yeah, let's. I'll be the. I'll be the a liberated male archetype now. I think I read something where there was an original end card saying they got divorced, and I would have cheered that at the end of the movie. So would I. Yeah, I think that's how it was released at theaters, and then when they put it out on VHS and DVD, they changed it to that they uh, that she does community service. And I was like, well, yeah, I can't really see those two sticking together. He probably no. would have ended up back with Kathleen Quinlan's character from the first one. I would have been happy with Kathleen Quinlan, yeah. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Or Mary Kay Place's character, who knows? You want to talk about the minor roles in here? We got Delroy Lindo turning up as an army sergeant telling uh, Toad to clean out the toilets. I was so surprised. I heard his voice and I was like, that doesn't look like Delroy Lindo, but that sure is his voice coming out of that guy's face. And then finally I could kind of see it. But man, what a distinct voice that guy has. And then we got some guy who was in a movie in the 70s. I'm not sure what he's done since playing the copper. Oh, oh, yeah. Uh, he, he was like a former uh, carpenter. Yeah, yeah. Had an affair with Carrie Fisher back in the day. Yeah. Harrison Ford. Yeah. He was in this cheesy science fiction film. I think I think I saw it on Svengoolie once. He was in the first movie. I don't know if you guys know that, but he was actually in yeah. that really? first movie. Yeah. Minor part. Yeah. Playing a guy. I think his name was Boba Fett. Something like that. Yeah. Right. Right, 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 right. Was he the one that gets shot first or? I think so. Okay, yeah. I was really impressed that 
even my, more minor characters like Manuel Padilla Jr., who is Carlos in the first movie, a member of the Pharaohs, shows up as uh, working on Milner's road crew. And I was like, oh, that's pretty awesome. And then, or of course, Greece. oh, yeah, that was fantastic. And then, uh, I mean, who doesn't love Bo Hopkins? I was so happy to see him and Toad together in Vietnam. He was one of the most underrated characters of the first one, in my opinion. I love his chemistry with Richard Dreyfus. It is so fantastic. Look at it this way. Now you got three choices. One, you chicken out. In that case, I let Ants tie to the car and drag you around a little bit. And you don't want that, right? No. Two, you foul up and hosting here, Jin. Well, uh, you don't want that, right? No, I don't. Three, you are successful. And you join the Pharaohs with the car code. And a blood initiation and all that, huh? What? Wait a minute, wait a minute. What's blood initiation? All the scenes with, with Richard Dreyfus and the Pharaohs just... Because you could sense that they learn kind of... They kind of like this guy and they want to, you know, they want to take him in and, and you know, make him kind of an honorary Pharaoh and just almost like a brother. When Bo Hopkins got shot, I was legitimately sad because I wanted to keep following him and Toad's character, you know? And then when he got... I'm like... Great. Now we we have to follow just Toad and the helicopter pilot. Bob Sinclair, who's tough but fair. That's the one, yeah. Oh, God, I forgot about that. And again, you know, had Joe died like a couple weeks before and Bob Sinclair comes in there and he's such a tight ass and then, you know, and is still with, you know, Joe's alive, Bob's in there. Joe and, and Toad are telling Bob, you know, this is how it really is. If it takes a long time or at least a couple of weeks for him to finally realize, oh, you guys are telling the truth and the CEO is a complete jerk off and all this stuff, then I can see it. But it just seems like such a quick turnaround to happen in one day. There's so much compression there, isn't there? So you did all of this stuff in one day. You tried to get yourself shot. You... Tried to get yourself hurt in a football game. You went out on this mission. You end up having to shovel all this shit. You go out on another mission and this horrible thing happens. Joe gets killed. You come back and it just seemed like, th- th- you know, one thing after another after another. And I did notice that watching it this last time that they are kind of faithful as far as the times of day. So when you watch it really carefully, it really feels like like this is happening late afternoon this is happening uh you know in the evening because when we do have his final stuff when he quote unquote gets killed it is happening at night so i'm like okay so they're following along but yeah it just feels like there's no way all this stuff could happen in one day unless it's just to say man vietnam was really fucking crazy and there could just be one day where all this shit happens well, don't they say in the ads for the army that we do more before six a.m. than you do all day? So, I mean, that kind of yeah. it kind of clicks, doesn't it? Yeah, I think they're trying to sell that it was in one day because they've got that congressional guy, and he's there throughout that narrative. Yeah, he wouldn't be there for weeks. He would just fly in and fly out, get told what he wants to hear, and then nick off again. Yeah, hear how many Viet Cong are being killed, and the way that they just keep inflating numbers. And, of course, they're never seen. No, we never see one Viet Cong the entire time. It's the Forrest Gump effect. You just hear the gunshots and the bullets hitting the water. You never see them in in person. Well, that would humanize them and make it so that Forrest Gump is an actual killer. Oh, he technically is. We we haven't mentioned the best scene in the movie yet, by the way. 
Which is? Shooting the snake in the strip club. <laughs> oh, oh, my God, I forgot about that. Slick Eddie. Yeah, the giant python that they try to give Debbie to do a strip tease with. And, and the guy just shoot, comes up and shoots it. <laughs> I love that the strip club owner is played by the car dealer from the first one. That seems like the na- natural progression for that character. I mostly know him for being the head of the uh, butchers that want uh, Dullard to go upstream and kill Fred Mertz from Porklips Now. He's up there operating beyond the pale of any decent merchandising procedure. Stealing our customers, making us look bad. It's demented. That's a deep cut. Well, you're Mike White. You're the king of the deep cut. I remember him more in that than I do in American Graffiti. So I was just like, oh, yeah, he was in American Graffiti. But okay, yeah. Well, it's like me um, remembering Laurie's other brother. It's like I remember him, Will Seltzer, from The Wizard as a kid, um, playing the bounty hunter who tries to get Fred Savage and his brother back to the... That's the only two films that he's probably known for is this one and more American Graffiti. And I think more American Graffiti, he was probably cast as an apology or a condolence or a consolation. Luke Skywalker in Star Wars because <laughs> he is such an irritating bore in this movie. I'm sorry. Yeah. He was just like, I wanted to smack him. He was an asshole. He was just, he was, he was up his, he was up his own ass, pretentious. And he doesn't change throughout the whole film. You want to punch him every scene he is in. And you could tell I, they were putting him in as like, okay, we can't get Dreyfus, but he had Dreyfus. Yep. It didn't work for me. Absolutely not. He, he was just a null. He was like a void in the film, really. Hey, you want another deep cut? Anna Bjorn, who plays Ava, the, uh, the Icelandic girl that John Milner's lusting after. Reggie Wanker's girlfriend in Get Crazy. Oh, wow. Princess Chantamina, yeah. You guys put me to shame, dude. I thought, no. <laughs> I got to watch more obscure films before I'm going to be on this podcast again. I need to watch more obscure movies before I'm going to even try to tangle with you two. Follow your dreams. Well, thank God, Get Crazy, I think, is finally coming out on Blue right now. Oh, I've got to get that. I'll have to get that. I have to crowdsource a copy of that, yeah. You know, More American Graffiti took a while to get on home video, too. Yeah, it was not easy to find. And then when I saw it, I think I rented it a long time ago in VHS, like because I saw part of it on TV, and then I rented it on VHS, and I don't think it was widescreen. So just fuck me, especially when it comes to all those um, multi-screen things. I don't remember if they perhaps letterbox that, but you can forget about seeing changes in format on a VHS copy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, the VHS wasn't even available until, like, what, the late 90s? Because I remember after watching American Graffiti, I knew there was a sequel. And I was looking for it. Like, I can't find this anywhere. It was not available. And then there was, like, in the er, mid to late 90s, there was an advertisement announcing that it was finally going to be released on video on Laserdisc. I'm like, oh, cool. And I never got to see it. But yeah, I think the late 90s, too, was the time when they started letterboxing widescreen movies. So maybe they were waiting finally. for that. Yeah. Yeah. This movie kind of needs letterboxing. Full frame kind of doesn't do it justice. You get those weird movies like uh, The Split with Jim Brown, where they do the multi-screen thing at times, and it's like suddenly the movie changes and it becomes letterbox and the rest of it's full frame, and then it'll go back to the letterbox really quick, and it's just like, whoa, stop it! Just put the whole damn thing in letterbox. What are you doing? And there are some assholes out there who say, wait, I don't want these black bars on my screen. I want a full frame. I want it to... The worst example was a TV version of 2001 I saw where they were doing the bit where the guys are talking in the pod, so Hal couldn't hear them, and they panned back and forth between the characters. 
Oh, pen and scan is, is the worst. Oh, yeah, um, but that, that's the worst example of pen and scan I ever saw. Columbia Pictures, uh, their pan and scan was always so obvious to me. Like when I watch it, when I would watch a Columbia Pictures film on video, especially in the '90s, you could tell when it was panning and scanning on the same scene, and you knew when it was originally widescreen. But yeah, it was very, very noticeable and very, very annoying. I mean, for the for our younger listeners out there, there used to be this phenomenon where the movie would start and it would some movies would be in letterbox because otherwise the credits would be off the screen because you've got a credit on the left, a credit on the right. So you letterbox the opening. And then as soon as the director's name comes up on screen, which is always the last credit, the movie starts to get bigger and fills up the rest of your screen suddenly. And it's just like, oh, man. So you would put in a VHS tape and you'd be watching it. You'd be like, yeah, it's letterbox. This is awesome. And then director's name comes up. Either it it blows up or cut to the next shot, and suddenly you're full frame. It's just like fuck me sideways. That yeah. that always kind of bugged me too. It's like, oh cool, it's the widescreen edition, uh, directed no. by. Zoo. I'm like shit. Jonathan Grice is in there as well, who was in Real Genius with uh, Val Kilmer. His father, John Grice, uh, Tom Grice, sorry, did Will Penny, one of the best Charlton Heston westerns. Yeah. I was really happy to see Mackenzie Phillips show up as well. And it's nice that she shows up in the Milner story and then also in the Debbie story and that she kind of bridges those two. And she's not there at the beginning. Cause like I said, we see everybody at the beginning all show up to Milner's race. And then she comes a little bit later on. And I like how she's kind of a bridge to have the kind of beatnik proto hippie kind of guy with her that's going to take her to a coffee shop. And then later on, we see her as the hippie character that's living with Debbie. That was kind of a nice little, little nod in there as well. Well, and there's also that great line where they see her making out with this greaser looking character. And uh, I forgot what the one character says. She, she has a thing for the fifties guys. Yeah, that was nice. (laughs) (laughs) That was nice. Kind of. She still has a thing for Milner childhood crush. I thought that was a great scene. What do you guys think of Paula Matters Milner? I thought he was better in this one than in the first one in a lot of ways. Um, I don't know if I would go that far. I like the the chemistry in Mackenzie Phillips in the first one more than I like the chemistry between him and uh, the Icelandic girl in this one. I thought the Mackenzie Phillips chemistry was more believable than in this one, but he was still really good. I mean, you know, he's still Paula Matt, you know, so. Very underrated, I think. Uh, the other thing, other thing we should mention Three or four Wilhelm, Wilhelm screams in there. I noticed that too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the first one I think happens during the football game. And I was like, oh, okay, there's the Wilhelm. And then, yeah, during the bar fight, there's another one. I was just like, really? We're getting another one? Okay. I think there was one in Vietnam as well. Well, I know for sure during the football game there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now it pulls me out of the movie when I hear it. It used to be like, oh, that's a nice little in joke. But now it's like, oh, really? I blame the internet. And that um, <laughs> super cut of that guy made, the Wilhelm screams in films. That was a little much. I watch that every now and then. It gets hypnotic after the, like, the 50th Wilhelm scream. You just kind of you lean into it a little bit, yeah. Somebody needs to make that into an alarm clock. I'll have to find out if my Google Home speaker can do that, yeah. Paul Lamette, he doesn't have a lot to act with. You know, like, we, we, like we're saying, the other character that he's acting against 
doesn't speak English in this movie, so he can't necessarily have a conversation with her. And then he is is always fighting with that other guy. And I like the moment where he and the other guy team up and become, oh, my car is better, but you're the better driver. It's like, okay, that's nice. And they finally get it together. And the guy's still a dick, and Milner's still kind of a dick. He makes that advance on Ava, but I'm glad that he realizes that it's the wrong thing. Again, pretty progressive for 1979. It doesn't feel too rapey to me. It's just like, okay. (laughs) It could have been really bad. Both movies, uh, American Graffiti and this one, have the mysterious blonde woman. And Ava's the mysterious blonde woman in the sequel. The thing that always gets me about American Graffiti... So it's a George Lucas movie, and you can tell it's a George Lucas movie because of a couple things. One of them is that it's the story of a character looking for a way to get out. You know, it's like THX looking for a way to leave the city. It's Kurt or Steve who's going to leave the hometown and get away. It's Luke Skywalker having to have his aunt and uncle murdered before he'll go off and learn the ways of the Force and become a Jedi like his father. So we've got that thing going on. And then we have like this weird incest thing that's going on in American Graffiti that always disturbs me where it's Steve and Lori and they're in a car and he's like, uh, he basically wants to have sex with her before he leaves. If you're not going to remember me for anything else, why don't you just go ahead? Oh, come on. You want it and you know it. Don't be so damn self-righteous with me. After all that stuff you told me about watching your brother. You're disgusting! Get out of my car! Get out! Lori! I told you never to mention that! What the fuck is going on here? <laughs> and, and then there's also like this weird that weird relationship between Milner and Carol, which thankfully never goes anyplace, but it reminds me of the conversations that Lucas was having with Spielberg and Kasdan about um, you know, Indiana Jones should be in his thirties and Marion should be maybe fourteen. And it's just like, whoa, what is going on here? Be interesting to see if anything comes out after Lucas dies. Oh, God. He's probably got notebooks and notebooks. I was watching The End of American Graffiti last night because um, it was on cable. And, the, well, there's that scene with Milner and what her name is Carol, right? I, uh, Mackenzie Phillips, yeah. where he's trying to make a move on her to trick her into giving her his address or her address so she can t- he can take her home. Even though he was joking, still came off kind of creepy to me because obviously Milner's probably, what, 20 or so because yeah. – there's there's a line in American Graffiti where Steve tells Kurt you can't be like you can't stay 17 forever like Milner. So I'm assuming Milner's been out of high school for a few years, and this girl's like 13, 14 years old. I mean, I think it's supposed to come off like cute, the relationship between them. There is kind of a cuteness to it, but once it got to that final scene where he tries to get the address out of her by almost trying to get with her, it kind of kind mm. of ruined it a little bit, but not too bad. Are you saying that um, George Lucas can't do tone and nuance? Oh, (laughs) perish the thought, right? It took me a long time to realize that Milner has stuck around the town and that he is that character. I was finally, I was reading the script the other day and it was like, okay, yeah, he's 22. And they really established that up front. I think it's that no matter what age I'm looking at this movie, he looks as young as 
Ron Howard and, and um, Richard Dreyfus, and, and I'm just like, okay, I've seen these guys older. I haven't really seen Paul Lamatt in too many other movies, like into the 80s and 90s, so I'm not really familiar with what he looks like older. So I know, like, he was in things like, you know, Strange Invaders, of course, which is everybody's favorite movie of, of all times, or at least mine. But, you know, I mostly know him from, like, Citizens Band and Melvin and Howard. So, like, after 1980, I didn't really see him in too many things. So he always looked like a teenager to me but then now it's like oh yeah he's like the wooderson from days of confused that's what i love about these high school girls man i get older they stay the same age <laughs> yeah he he is that kind of character of like he doesn't want to grow up or leave the town because he feels kind of safe there in that town he's the big head honcho the big shot drag racer stud i guess you could say and he kind of is afraid to go anywhere beyond that point. Yeah, but I think I think in the sequel, though, he's got his dream. He wants to get that um, sponsorship, and he wants to expand out of the town. But to do that, he has to stay in the town, build his reputation, and then move on. So I got the idea that he wasn't quite fitting into the town quite as well as he was in the first movie, and that he had that ambition to make something more and to go somewhere else. The last shot of him driving off, well, obviously, it's the scene where he gets hit by the drunk driver, even though you don't technically see it i think it's him driving off to move forward right before that scene he asks the girl to marry him which i thought yeah he's jumping the gun a little bit let's just stick to watching the rose bowl yeah a little bit let's stick to actually learning each other's language before we agree to become man and wife yeah let me try to eat that um horse meat that you put under the ground for 18 months and then i'll have a go at it yeah and a shark shark meat oh what is that called yeah sirstrami I'm glad that they don't show Milner's death, that they keep that off screen and that they just leave it kind of vague. And it's really kind of eerie the way that his car disappears over that hill and the other car disappears over the other hill and then bring up very similar epilogue. I think $3 million budget, you're not going to wreck a coupe. I mean, it's already enough that they're trying to do the drag cars and stuff, the drag race cars. Speaking of the the uh, epilogue, I, I did I did like how they finally gave gave Debbie some closure. Yeah, it was a little Lucas trying to say why he didn't do the epilogue for the women in the first movie. It's kind of bullshit. Where he's just like, oh yeah, there's just uh, it'd be too many people on screen, or you'd have to split it into two. And I'm just like, really? That's your excuse? Uh, and she said, well, if you're gonna put the guys there, why don't you put the girls there? I said, well, what, if you put you know, if you have eight people at the end of the movie instead of four people. It's two cards. It's two cards. It's twice as long, and it kind of disrupts. It's like a little explanation point that's at the end of the movie. It isn't a, a big thing. So for creative reasons, I said, no, uh, this is about these four guys. Well, I thought it would have been interesting to see what happened to the girls, too. You don't have to do it for everybody. You don't have to do it for little Joe and every single character, but give me Debbie. Give me Lori. He'll let them in yeah. on the special editions in the future for digital technology. What I don't really understand is, did Terry actually walk out of Vietnam and back home? That's what I'm wondering, too. That's a good question. Yeah, because, you know, some guy in a Hawaiian shirt marching through South Vietnam with a backpack on, you know, that's not going to end. Are you sure no one's going to take that guy out? <laughs> or he's going to step on a mine, or he's suddenly going to fall into a, a punji steak or something. Really or something to walk with no trouble all the way back to America yeah. with no, with no, cause they're going to know the guy's not on his, on their side. Maybe he's going to hitchhike to Paris or something. 
Yeah, I think he's going to go to that French plantation that's somewhere up the river and just hang out with those ghosts. He spoke a little French in high school. He can get through. I mean, the guy's had the luck of the Irish as far as just not getting killed that entire day. So I don't see what another 48, 72 hours is going to be a problem there. My theory is he's a relation to Rambo. Rambo never gets killed in anything. And so Toad is actually that. And eventually he's going to get to the stage where there's going to be a napalm strike and he's just lighting a cigarette off the flame and walking away. I almost like the idea of him somehow catching a freighter over to Canada and living with Kurt or, you know, at least they're like neighbors or something. So we're going with Kurt rather than Colonel Kurtz. There you go. All right, we're going to take a break and play a couple of interviews. First up, you'll hear from writer-director Bill Norton. After that, you'll be hearing the first part of my interview with Candy Clark and part of the interview with William Hike. And we'll be back with all that right after these brief messages. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap either. Every week, The Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again... That's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. You like classic movies? How about classic TV? Over at Forgotten TV, I've covered everything from obscure Saturday morning TV to short-lived shows like Otherworld, The Phoenix, The Highwayman, and Cliffhangers. You can find the show over at Forgotten.tv or at all the usual podcast places. I hope you'll join me soon at Forgotten TV. Hi there, faithful Projection Booth listener, Chris Stashew here. If you're looking for even more deep-dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to CultureCast.com or find it on all podcasts Catchers, both Android and iOS. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to The Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at The Projection Booth are talking about good 
party cinema related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We hate movies every Tuesday. I'm really curious how you managed to get into show business. I mean, that's. Well, I went to film school and, um, and and actually, oddly enough, about the time that I entered film school, there was a uh, my dad. He had been a state park ranger and a carpenter and stuff, and and he had always been interested in writing. And uh, his writing career kind of started to take off. He did a, a movie called um, God, what the hell was it? it was, um, Scalp Hunters with the Sidney Pollack directed it. But anyway, he, he, you know, I grew up in a family that was interested in movies and, um, we used to go to uh, the art theater and see, uh, you know, French new move, new wave movies. And so I went to film school. I was, I was at uh, UCLA and, um, got out of film school and, um, I worked as a grip and, uh, as an assistant, uh, editor and a bunch of kind of low-level jobs, and all the while wanting to direct. And finally, I figured out that the easiest path to directing was writing. So I taught myself how to be a writer, and uh, that kind of you know led me into uh, directing jobs. What was the film program like at UCLA? Was it relatively new at that point? Uh, no, it had, you know, it was, uh, an older, it probably started in the forties. And at that time, um, which was the, the late sixties, uh, there were really three major college programs in, in America. I mean, one was NYU, Scorsese was, was there, um, SC, which was, you know, George Lucas, John Millius and UCLA, which, uh, five years earlier had produced Francis Coppola. Uh, UCLA was a state school, or is a state school, and uh, we felt that we were the artists where uh, SC students were the rich kids. And of course, uh, the SC students seemed to do better in the film business than we did. Uh, but, um, it was, it was kind of amazing time. Jim Morrison was there. It was just leaving, uh, UCLA when, uh, when I started there, I used to see him around, um, there was an area called the gypsy wagon where we all used to you know, hang out. And, and, uh, I saw this guy one day, uh, who was wearing a pajama top and I thought, Ooh, that's weird. You know? And that was Jim Morrison. <laughs> And Ray Manzarek, who was the organist for uh, The Doors, was a real star of the film school. I mean, he was he was a very talented guy. He was a, a little older than the rest of us, maybe five years older. So what were your early gigs like when you got onto school? I was the assistant editor at Encyclopedia Britannica Films um, uh, on a documentary film about... Uh, of the ghetto in Los Angeles, and uh, the and it was interesting because the the sync mechanism on the camera had broken, so there was no sync pulse on the on the recording thing. So I had to I had to lip read to um, to sync up all the the film on this thing, and it was just it was just a horrible horrible job. Uh, I also worked as as a grip. I mean, I was you know and uh, worked on um, kind of independent, semi-pornographic movies, um, 
and you know, and worked in commercials a little bit. And and then I, I got out of that and I started doing um, rock and roll films that were kind of the precursors to um, to you know music videos. And did that for a while, and then eventually decided you know I had to learn how to write. So what were those uh, those original screenplays like? I got pretty lucky because uh, I wrote this movie Cisco Pike, and I and I had I had some kind of false starts on various um, scripts, but I wrote Cisco Pike, and it really was my first script, um, and I uh, gave it to a friend. And uh, a guy who worked at uh, Columbia Pictures, and um, he gave it to his producing boss, and um, the guy did liked it and decided that he wanted to make it as a movie. So I did. That was like in 1969, I think. And I I wrote for the next year, rewriting and rewriting and rewriting this thing, and uh, ultimately it got made. Uh, Chris Christopherson was in it. Gene Hackman. It was about a uh, uh, a guy who was um, selling marijuana to uh, make a living. And uh, what I, I lacked in uh, finesse as a writer at that stage, I made up for in uh, authenticity. <laughs> so anyway, so that 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 became my first movie. Did I read right that Seymour Cassell was supposed to be in the Christopherson role for a while? He was actually going to be in the in the Harry Dean Stanton part, and uh, and then he got a movie called Deadhead Miles uh, that that uh, took him away. We lost him to my yeah. He ended up being lucky because uh, Harry Dean Stanton actually was much better in the part than he would have been. It is such an amazing cast, and it must have been wonderful to work with just such luminaries right out of the gate. Well, you know, I was I was very lucky. I mean, I um I, yeah, I, I you know, they they were not luminaries <laughs> as a matter of fact. I mean, um Hackman had not done uh, French Connection yet and uh Christopherson uh had had a small part in uh, uh a Dennis Hopper movie. Um I forgot the title of it, but the thing they shot in Peru and uh, the last movie yeah, the last movie, right? And um, so it was—I mean, it was a big jump for them, big jump for me. And uh, uh, yeah, I was lucky. And then I, after that, I spent um, basically the movie flopped. I mean, it got some good reviews. I mean, I got some very good reviews actually, but but it, it didn't make any money. And and it was difficult to get. I mean, I couldn't get directing jobs after that. But I but I kept writing, and um, and I had. A number of you know sort of writing jobs after that, and uh, it, it I did a movie called um, uh, Outlaw Blues, Losing It, Convoy, movie Back to the Beach. But anyway, um, and, and then and then um, uh, as I was working as a writer, and um, uh, uh, and this job came about uh, to to write the sequel to uh, American Graffiti. And um, I found out later that I, I'd met George once or twice. You know, I didn't really know him. I mean, we weren't friends at all. But I knew uh, Gloria Katz, who was uh, who I went to film school with, and who, uh, with her husband, Willard uh, Hike, were the writers of the original American Graffiti. 
And they told me later that they were actually George told me that that they were looking for a writer who was same age as George and grew up in the same kind of, you know, youth culture, you know, with cruising in cars and all that kind of stuff and was a California writer, you know, and I, I fit the bill and, um, I sent him a couple of scripts that I wrote losing it and, uh, convoy and he liked the scripts. And, um, so we met and, uh, you know, and I told him that I had directed, wanted to direct. And he said that he didn't want to direct the movie because for you know, he was busy with the uh, Star Wars projects and you know various reasons. I th- actually at that time, I think he he said that he didn't want to direct anymore. Period. He he had a bad time on uh, Star Wars. Uh, he said they got skin rashes. You know, it was, it was just got really a nerve wracking job. Uh, so I said. Hey, if you don't want to do it, I'd like to do it, you know? And he said, well, you know, if, you know, write the script and if I like it, you can direct it. So that's uh, how that came about. It seems like such a thankless job, I guess, just because American Graffiti was such a huge hit. And then to come in and try to follow that up, I mean, that must have been a lot of pressure on you. It was a big chance to... A uh, big opportunity to get d- to directing again because that's really what I wanted to do. You know, I, w- I wanted to be a director, so I was I was gung ho. I mean, I was you know happy to go, and and also George. Uh, and this is this is the part of the story that is really interesting is that the backstory on American Graffiti is that um, George had problems with Universal. There's a famous incident that happened when they they first screened the picture. Francis Coppola was the producer of it, and uh, uh, George directed, of course. And uh, they had this screening, a premiere screening, and the the film didn't go over that well. And Ned Cannon, who was uh, like the production head at the time went to the screening and said, you know, this film, I mean, it really insulted George. He said, this, this film is atrocious. You know, it's, you know, it's garbage, blah, blah, blah. And I don't know the exact words. And, and, uh, and Francis famously defended George, you know, he said, you know, how dare you speak to this young filmmaker this way? You know, this is, you put his heart and soul in this movie and this is a great movie and you just watched. It's going to be, you know, it'll do really well. Lo and behold, the movie went out, and it was a huge hit. I mean, it really tapped into uh, my generation and, um, uh, you know, to the kind of youth culture at the time. And it was revolutionary in its own way. I mean, it used popular music, which had rarely been used in movies up to that point. I mean, you'd see popular music in uh, in kind of uh, shorts and student films and kind of art art films, but not in a, in a studio movie. So it was a huge, huge hit. A couple of years went by and, uh, George went on when did, did star Wars and, um, universal, I mean, he, he, he went to Fox. I mean, he, he wouldn't go back to universal. I hated the people. Star Wars, of course, is a big hit. About a year after star Wars came out, universal went to George and said, we're going to make a sequel to American Graffiti, and we invite you to be involved. In other words, 
if he wasn't going to be involved, they were just going to do whatever the hell they wanted in, in, in making the, the sequel. So George uh, was pissed off, and he, you know, I was like, well, fuck these guys, you know. And he said, I'm going to make a uh, an art movie, you know, said that to himself, and um, started thinking about it. And he came up with some really um, radical ideas. Let me cut to the first meeting that I had with George. We sat down, and he said, okay, I'm going to tell you the secret of how uh, I made American Graffiti. And he said, it's a mathematical formula. I wanted to do a movie based around the length of a popular song, which is like two minutes. And I wanted to do a multiple story structure with four stories taking place over one night. And and he thought, okay, I've got, um, you know, a hundred minutes or so and decided that's how many scenes would that be? Figuring that every scene would be the length of a popular song, about two minutes. So he came up with about a hundred scenes, a little bit under a hundred scenes and, and, uh, decided that every story would be 12 scenes and each scene would be a two minute scene and, you know, a total with 12, you know, around a hundred. So he said that, that was the formula um, for making the movie. And I, I just thought that was the craziest thing I ever heard because you don't, I mean, there's no kind of mathematical formula for storytelling, you know, I mean, you, you know, that you have to generally in a movie, you have to have so many scenes, you have to, you know, basically have a story that has a beginning, middle and an end. And, um, yet he had this kind of constructor of, um, the length of a popular song. And I thought, I, I, you know, if I didn't know that, that successful and, and that his plan works so well in American video, I would have thought he was nuts. You know, I want to follow the same formula. Uh, 12 scenes, four stories, but I want to expand the situation where um, rather than have um, this as an American graffiti, all everything happened in one night and basically one location with characters kind of interacting with other characters and other stories um, happening around one night. Um, he said, I want to uh, follow these characters into the future and um he started with um ron howard and cindy williams had uh their story was that they were going to be married and involved with um uh college demonstrations against the war um and terry the toad uh, would be have a story in vietnam john milner um the paula mack character would have a story that would be Set around the you know, this this is the guy who was a hot rodder in uh, in American Graffiti. They would have a story set on the on the um, the drag strip, um, you know, about car racing. And Candy Clark would have um, a story set in Hippie Hate Ashbury, and that all these stories not only would they be in separate locations, they would also be in separate time zones. So, you know, the Milner story, you know, there's like five years difference between them. One story is in 67 and one another one's in 63 or 62 or, you know, um, somewhere in there. I, I, you know, 
time has gone on. I can't remember the exact uh, time set in the stories, but but they would they would interact in such a way that that say Terry the Toad uh, is off in Vietnam, and you cut from Terry the Toad to uh, the Ron Howard Cindy Williams story, and they're involved in a college protest. So the the overall kind of mosaic was that it 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 set a um it gave you a feeling of how life was in the 60s and a lot of um you know different places and also the the other thing was was interesting is he said that that he felt that each of the stories should be filmed in a different style and we talked about that and came up with the idea that um uh, the John Milner story, which is kind of the most traditional of the stories, is like a, a Sam Katzman hot rod movie or, or something. It would be shot kind of, you know, 50 millimeter on sticks widescreen. The Ron Howard, uh, Cindy Williams story, there was a kind of a spate of college protest movies at that time. And a lot of long lenses were sort of popular. There was a movie called Strawberry Statement and, uh, Richard Rush did the director did another um, movie of that genre. Anyway, so with that would be all like a long lens story. Vietnam, the Terry the Toad story, would be shot in the manner of uh, the newsreels of the period, which are 16 millimeter. The Candy Clark story, um, which is uh, set in Haight Ashbury, would be sort of uh, hippie psychedelic so it was multiple screen anyway so there, there there's just a, you know really a con- weird conglomeration of 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 styles going on in uh, in in making the movie and it had the you know and it, when the, when the movie was all put together i mean i it I, you know i i feel i mean looking back on it i think that it was that we were pushing the envelope a little too far, you know, that um, the original American Graffiti really hit it on the nose with, um, you know, with with shooting it in one visual style, one camera style, and, uh, you know, one night where people were, you know, sort of, uh, um, you know, would run into each other's stories. Anyway, that's how, how that uh, kind of came about. The title cards at the end of the original graffiti, I mean, I like the way that you, know, you still manage to carry on some of those stories, even though it's like oh, right, right. Terry yeah. is, is lost in uh, Vietnam, but then you show what actually happens with that. And I can't remember what happened to the Richard Dreyfus character. Richard Dreyfus um, was, uh, his career was firing on all cylinders, and he didn't want to do a sequel. So that's that's what happened to him. <laughs> he was just not involved. The split screen stuff is just it is so amazing to watch and it looks like were you were you shooting multiple cameras while you were doing that? Some, not a hell of a lot, but um we did some. I mean for you know concert stuff and uh uh you know that kind of thing we used multiple cameras but certainly not as much as as you see nowadays you know and and film point everything everything is shot multiple cameras nowadays everything where did you actually shoot the vietnam sequence that was in uh, stockton 
there's a um, a river area that the um, the delta area, which is kind of overgrown and um, uh, you know the jungle like, and uh, that's where we shot it. You know, here's another interesting story. George was originally going to shoot, was going to direct uh, Apocalypse Now, uh, and um, uh, he was going to do it in that same area and do it 16 millimeter. So that's, that's where that idea came from. And then, um, you know, something happened and Francis decided that he was going to direct it instead. What was it like for these actors to return to these characters that had really put a lot of them on the map? They were, uh, very enthusiastic to be doing the sequel. They really were. And they were, they were, you know, generally, with the exception of, um, John Milner character. They they really were you know fired up to do it and Ron Howard was was um, a lot of fun to work with I, re- I really enjoyed him particularly Kenny Clark was great I really enjoy her sequence for I I don't know I guess it was just the most full of life you know she seemed to end up being the happiest of all the people Oh really Oh God that's nice to hear that You know uh, Well that's good. Uh, yeah, well, she was she was uh, you know fun to work with, and and the the um, uh, you know I I found that hippie area you know interesting to to write because I I was I was one of those people you know I mean I was a hippie you know I had long hair and I smoked dope you know that's <laughs> it was uh, so nice to see such a young uh, Scott Glenn in that sequence as well. Yeah, Scott and I had worked together previously. I did a TV movie called Gargoyles, a horror movie that uh, that Scott was in. Yeah, I mean he's he's uh, he was he was young, and uh, yeah, so was I. He was almost unrecognizable in Gargoyles. Like I, I think I kind of got him from the voice, but he just looked so young in there. He was like a baby. Oh really? Yeah, yeah. God, I'm I'm surprised you saw that. Oh yeah, no, that film is actually really well known amongst the horror community. Just uh, one, it was hard to find for a long time, but then those special effects—I mean, the makeup effects in that are terrific. Oh, they they really were. Yeah, yeah, that was that was a fun show to do. We did it in uh, Carlsbad Caverns, and uh, I mean, it was really rough work because I mean it was a lot of nights and things and and we went down in these caverns um, in daytime and you'd you'd work all night and you'd lose track of day and night I mean it was like being a miner or something it was really really horrible and uh, you know bats and things were we're way back in this area of the uh, caverns where uh, people didn't normally go and you had a really good cast for that, too. I mean, Cornell Wilde was great. Bernie Casey. I kind of wish that I had been able to recognize Bernie Casey a little bit more. He's such yeah, a great actor. I, I felt bad about that one, I'll tell you. I mean, he, you know, his, his voice was changed in post and everything. Yeah. yeah. Jennifer Salt was great. I mean, she you remember her from Sisters, the, the Palma movie? Yeah. That was fun. And, and, and Bernie... Uh, um, Cornell Wilde, um, Naked Prey was just, was just a great movie. So it was interesting for me to, to um, you know, to be able to talk to him about his career and his directing. Was that originally intended for a TV movie, or was it originally intended for theatrical release? No, it was a TV movie, uh, CBS. Yeah, 
I mean, they were, they, you know, they, and it was just a fluke thing that I got it. I mean, I was, you know, I got, got, got called in to see these guys and uh, they needed a director and they hired me. I mean, I really didn't expect to get the job. It was after, after uh, Cisco Pike and, uh, I, you know, and Cisco Pike, of course, was a feature, and uh, Gargoyles was a TV movie. I felt like, oh, should I be doing a TV movie? <laughs> but I'm, in retrospect, I'm glad I did. I mean, it was a lot of a lot of fun doing it. What was it like working with uh, Sam Peckinpah on Convoy? Hey, listen, I'm a huge Peckinpah fan. I mean, Ride, Ride the High Country uh, and The Wild Bunch are just some of the greatest movies ever, you know? I kind of wrote... There were aspects of Convoy which were, I was sort of sending up, believe it or not, kind of sending up Wild Bunch in in certain ways. You know, I mean, there was a there was a the young guy gets captured. You know, like the in Wild Bunch, the uh, you know the bad guys get hold of the young guy and the group kind of gathers together to rescue him and all this. I was surprised that that somebody who I was kind of sending up in a way. You know, you know, agreed to do the movie. You know, and um, as far as working with him, I mean, he, I mean, and he was a legend. I mean, I was so thrilled to just be in his presence. I can't tell you. And but he was a, he was a, you know, he was a drinker like you can imagine. I mean, he, he was living in the in the in the production offices in Beverly Hills. This kind of, you know, the curtains were pulled in this kind of dark, dingy place, and there always a drink in front of it. And then he, then he kind of quit drinking as the movie started, and then, but then he kind of got into cocaine, and and I remember scouting uh, locations with him one day, and we were riding around in a in a station wagon, and there were like five people, maybe or six people, in the car, and and he'd be you know, pour out Coke in his, um, between his thumb and his forefinger, you know, the way that you would put salt if you were drinking tequila and pass it around the car. <laughs> and then, you know, it was, it was, it was nuts. And, and then his secretary, Katie, was with him and he'd start improvising dialogue <laughs> that was, no offense to Sam. I mean, really, the man is, is a genius, but this dialogue was just god awful. And I got um, then I would the the dialogue would be typed up and it'd be passed to me, and and they'd say put it in the script. And I go, oh, yeah. and uh, you know, I'd I'd find ways to put some of it in, or you know, rewrite it and fool around with it a little bit. But uh, it was you know, it was not. Sam Peckinpah is greatest. Let's just put it that way. How much did the song influence the movie? Oh, a lot. Well, um, yeah, a lot. I mean, that was, you know, I had this idea. I mean, I heard the song on the radio, and I thought, man, this is a movie, you know? I wrote a treatment up and, and um, you know, got my agent to send me around to meet some producers. And I, I met this guy, Bob Sherman, who actually had bought up the rights to it prior to, to our meeting. And I said, boy, I'd really like to do this thing, you know, and it, it, you know, it's just a, kind of a natural movie. One thing led to another and I got the job right in it. And, and, and at the time there was a, this kind of popular movement of, of, of CBs. You remember those things, you know, the CB radios, 
and truck you know the whole kind of uh, uh, vocabulary of of the CBs, you know, ready, breaker, breaker, one, nine, you know, all that kind of stuff was, was, um, you know, kind of in popular culture. So there was like, everybody was thinking about truck drivers, you know, and, and then there was, there were a couple other truck drivers. There's Deadhead Miles, the one that I mentioned a minute ago that Seymour Cassell ultimately did. And, um, a couple other ones here and there. And, you know, that, that was a funny movie for me because I hated the thing, man, when it came out. I mean, I just hated it. Uh, and I had some net points in it. And Graham Clifford, who subsequently became a director, was a friend of mine, and he was the editor on it. And uh, actually, when when we saw the the film, saw the director's cut, we saw it was like maybe a half an hour, forty five minutes of the script, and then there's a card saying "scene missing," and then a cut to the last scene of the movie. I mean, it was really a mess. I mean, it was crazy. And Peckinpah got fired, and Graham took over the editing, and he kind of, you know, found the story again and made it sort of semi-coherent, you know. Uh, so anyway, so I was I was happy that Graham had had uh, you know improved it over the director's cut. But I still hated the goddamn movie. And Graham, and I had uh, net points in it, a few points. And so um, Graham said, well, do you want to sell your points? And I said, sure. You know, so I sold them for nothing. And it ended up that they made money. I mean, I can't tell you how shocked I was. <laughs> so anyway, it was a good deal for Graham. Listen, it was all right. I got paid. I'm as happy to be, you know. To, to have had the job, but uh, it was just interesting that it that you know sometimes things work for some reason you know that they click with an audience and uh, it it made you know it did really well. You started work in television. We were talking earlier about how you worked on the Twilight Zone in the mid '80s. Was it more like quote unquote slumming it to work television at that point? Cause oh, now definitely, I'm... definitely, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was a real, um, yeah, I mean, there was just, you know, the TV people and then there were feature people and feature people were the kings, you know. Um, But I discovered as time went on, waiting, you know, years between uh, feature jobs that I I got a a job doing a pilot for uh, actually Right. Well, I, I did like a page one rewrite on this pilot that I was given, and uh, for this show called uh, Tour Duty, and I discovered I did this thing, and I really enjoyed doing it, and I realized that I could direct just as much as I wanted um, in doing television. Uh, I became a television guy, and I don't regret it. I mean, I was, I was. Uh, uh, it was fun. I like I like the process of you know collaboration. I like working with people. I like being around people, and uh, you know made me very happy. You know, you've written movies that you've directed. You've written movies that other people have directed, and I think you've done at least one, if not more, movies that other people have written that you've directed. While well, we talked about Gargoyles, but also with the um, Baby Secret of the Lost Legend. Right. What is that like for you to direct somebody else's work? Do you still try to 
do like rewrites just to kind of make it more your own? You know, it's, it really depends on the situation. For one thing, as, as my career went on, I did less and less writing. I just, I, I got tired of sitting in a room alone. Turdude is an example of a, of a, of a job where I just completely did a hundred percent rewrite on the, on the thing. Baby, I was desperate to get a movie made. Um, I, it had been like two, three years since I had done, um, more American graffiti. And I had had a couple scripts that I wrote that, that I couldn't get, get made. Uh, so I, I needed to do a feature and I got offered this job and I did, I did, a fair amount of rewriting on it, but, uh, you know, it was what it was. I mean, I wasn't, um, you know, I, I, it's not a movie that came from the soul. I mean, I really did it to work. You know, if I'm given, you know, I, I did, uh, and, and television, an example of, uh, there's this show called the unit that uh, David Mamet was the showrunner on. And, um, I directed three of his scripts and Hey, what a pleasure. That's a David Mamet script, you know? So I, you know, I didn't touch a word. Um, you know, it just it just depends on the situation. You know, if, if it looks like there's, you know, also other people involved. I mean, maybe actors are complaining about something, and you know, and, and as a director, you rewrite it or or the studio or whatever whatever the situation is. Of the work that you've done, what has been the most satisfying for you? You know, I, I it's it's such a hard question. You know, I've been doing. I mean, I've been been working for 40 years. I mean, I had a 40 year career and, um, uh, there, there shows that I did that, that I didn't think much of at the time, you know, like gargoyles that have, you know, people like you, you remember the damn thing. I was like, Holy smokes. Let's see what's wrong with this guy. You know, it's hard to say. I mean, I think, I think I, I, you know, I think the most satisfying thing in making a film is to, first of all, I think that writing is the most important element in a movie. There's just no question. I mean, it, it, it is of supreme importance. And after that, who the stars are is also extremely important. And then in third place, it would be who the director is. So I would say that the, the most fun that I've had has been in things that I've that I've written and um, felt that they they worked, you know. Maybe I actually come of the shows on some of the shows on tour duty. I really uh, I really enjoyed uh, doing them. I did one show, just to, you know, they're hour episode shows. They were shows about um, Vietnam, and I did a a show that um, I was watching with my mother, and my mother was a visiting at the house here and uh, she started crying in the middle of it and I thought man I mean it really I mean it re- it, it really um, you know it was deeply affecting me like boy I really you know <laughs> you know you know created something nice here you know but anyway I've I've uh, you know it's been a good life I've um, enjoyed doing it and you know I'm retired now and I miss it you know, it was it was uh, great fun. I think I think you know the the other thing that's interesting about directing is that it got to the point as I was doing television, it, my great pleasure was who I was working with, and if I liked the people, and if I liked the kind of creative interplay, 
then I, you know, it was just immensely rewarding, you know, and, you know, and largely that came from, um, uh, you know, working with a cameraman or, or, uh, you know, the actor, you know, the, the actors and that thing. So what are you doing to keep yourself busy these days? I, uh, I live in Venice. Um, I live in a really nice house on the beach. I've lived in this house for 30 years. 30 years ago, I hired a local Venice architect who nobody ever heard of named Frank Gehry. And uh, it's, uh, so it's like a, a really nice house that I have looking at the ocean. And I'm, uh, you know, I, I have little projects. I, I make furniture. I, uh, you know, various little art projects. And I'm an avid uh, spear fisherman. I've shot uh, tuna in a big tuna, like 100-pound type tunas. And, uh, uh, you know, these fish called white sea bass, which uh, we're, that are kind of indigenous to Southern California. And um, and I I love doing that. And I've got a, a nice family, two kids. My son is um, is now directing. He's directing commercials and uh, looks like he is going to get a, a feature off that uh, he wrote about bull riders. No complaints. My wife's a script supervisor. She's a great person too. Just did. Um, um, Stars Born, La La Land, a couple of shows that she did. I I've heard of those. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's terrific. Yeah. It's like the family business. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is. I mean, it's, it really is. Interesting. I mean, going back to my dad, you know, who was. Well, Mr. Norton, thank you so much for your time. This was great talking with you. Well, I enjoyed it thoroughly. Thank you very much. I was really curious how you decided to get into show business. What was your path? I was modeling in New York. After four years of trying, I was getting some uh, regular clients. You know, I get called back by the same people, and it was really nice, and I was having a breakthrough. When uh, I went to um, Lynn Stallmaster's casting office, and I wanted to get into doing some extra work, you know, to make some extra money and kind of just hang about. So I went and I was an extra in this film called Who is Harry Kellerman and Why is He Saying Those Things About Me? I was in a crowd scene of about 200 people and I really enjoyed it. You know, the, we kind of, the art little scene was, uh, like the office hours were ending and we were coming through this revolving door and Dustin Hoffman had a little guitar or a violin and he dropped it and all the people were kind of kicking it forward and he was trying to get it. And that was it. We must have done that little scene. There was no dialogue. I don't know. It seemed like 20 times, maybe more. But I really enjoyed hanging out. We A lot of times we were sitting in the bleachers and having donuts and stuff. Anyway, I went back to Lynn Stallmaster's office and I said, I, I want to do more extra work. And I dropped off my picture. But there in his office visiting Lynn Stallmaster was Fred Roos. And Fred Roos, (laughs) 
was the one that wound up casting me in Fat City. But he said, you know, Lynn Stallmaster made the introduction. I was just an extra. And he said, this is Candy Clark and this is Fred Roos. And I didn't know who he was. But back then, it was like um, easygoing time. And Fred Roos said, hey, you want to go with me to watch him cast uh, the actors for The Godfather? And I said, yeah, sure. So I went out to this studio with Fred. We got in a cab. We were out in Brooklyn or Bronx or somewhere. And I met Francis Coppola and Jimmy Kahn. And all these guys were trying out for the part. Everyone was really nice. You know, I went out several days in a row. You know, once I got a little taste for it, I wanted to go back. So I kept showing up. And next thing I know, Fred Roos was calling me and saying he wanted me to try out for this part in a film called Fat City. And I said, no, I just want to be an extra. You know, I I have my modeling career. I've been working on that and finally, you know, having a breakthrough. And I just, you know, it doesn't interest me. I I don't want to do it. He wanted me to, like, pay my way and, you know, fly out to California and, you know, all this expense. And I'm just like... (sighs) not interested but finally uh, he kept calling he didn't give up and I thought well I'm going to drive a hard bargain here and he's not going to he's not going to say he's going to say no so I said I want to go okay I will come but I want to go to Disneyland and I want to go to the Academy Awards because I knew they were coming up and he said okay I'm like no geez I just want to be an extra and so anyway, um, I flew out. I was living in New York City. I flew out and um, tried out for this part. And it was a long scene, a crying scene. And, I, you know, I didn't know the first thing about acting. I went in. It was a really hot day, I remember. And I was really sweating. And I had on this hat that said Disneyland across it. And... uh I go in, it's my turn, and there's Fred Fred Roos and uh, Ray Stark and uh, see, I don't think John Houston was there. There's this other guy named David Dworsky, I'll never forget. And uh, I just thought, well, and it's a crying scene, so I thought once I get to that part, I'll just duck my head, my face behind this hat and just make some whimpering sounds and they won't know and it'll be fine and I can go back to New York City. And so I did it and then I'm running to the elevator because uh, I just wanted to get out of there and I hear feet coming behind me, you know, uh, uh, shoes and and it's Fred Roos <laughs> and he says they want you to come back and do a screen test. And I'm like, no, I just want to be an extra. I just want to be an extra. And so the next thing I know, I was, came back out. They put me up at the Chateau Marmont. I got my, called my mother. And I said, you've got to help me memorize this scene. And so she came out and we were both staying at the Chateau. Then uh, there was this day where we had to do, you know, it was me, Margot Kidder, and uh, another actress named Jennifer Salt. And they had a cutaway car where the front half of it was cut off. They had cameras there. John Houston was there. And probably Fred Roos was there. <laughs> um, then I was introduced to Jeff Bridges. And I thought, wow, he's cute. 
And um, then Jeff and I, you know, he was my partner and I thought he was just my partner, but I, apparently he was all the actress's partner and um, he already had the part. I didn't know that at the time, but uh, we did this scene uh, and the next thing I know, I got the part, you know, it was just total fluke. It's kind of nutty that you didn't want this career. No, I did not. I just wanted to continue with the modeling. I love New York City. And, you know, I made my way there and I was able to pay my bills. And, you know, I was, like I said, I had regular clients, Seventeen Magazine, Glamour, Ingenue, you know, the teenage fashion stuff. I was doing commercials and, you know, I was finally reaping some rewards from from modeling. And so who wants to leave when you're, you know, climbing the ladder? of success. I'm glad I tried out, you know, looking back, who knows, you know, the model's life isn't very long and probably would have wound up doing, I don't know what, uh, being a booking agent for models. I have no idea if I had stuck around uh, where it would have gone. Well, that scene with you and Bridges in the car, it is such a powerful scene. And it's amazing to know that you didn't have any acting experience before that. Once I got the job, and it was a quite a nice part, but it kept getting smaller and smaller because they realized I didn't know what I was doing. And so they tried to give us some acting lessons, <laughs> like overnight, you know, I'm supposed to learn acting. And so they called this teacher uh, up on set, a man named Jeff Corey, who was speaking a language uh, about acting that, you know, I didn't know the lingo. So... <laughs> It was just way over my head, and I spent a lot of these so-called acting classes just crying because I was, just felt so stupid. But anyway, uh, you know, they, they I was left with some part, some of the the film, you know, edited in, and um, but they were so nice, like John Huston and you know Ray Stark. They were just so great to me. They made the most of their boo-boo. They probably should have hired Jennifer Salter, Marco Kidder, but I got picked and every weekend they'd have little parties. The actors were invited and um, John Houston would try to get us to drink tequila with a worm in the bottle. <laughs> and we're like, ooh, Susan Terrell was fantastic and Stacy Keach and Nick Colasanto and all these real boxers. The script was amazing. It reminded me of a John Steinbeck story. It was so well written by Leonard Gardner. And uh, God, you know, I, once I got the taste of acting, I decided I'd better go to some classes and learn what what I was doing halfway. And uh, but you know, it was just wonderful. I was just two months in Stockton, California. And uh, the at the Holiday Inn, I think it was, next to the Civic Center. And so Jeff and I would go watch wrestling, and they'd have salsa dances there. And it was just a great place, Stockton. I loved it. And I moved Lock, Stock, and Barrel uh, <laughs> to uh, uh, Los Angeles, got a little apartment. <laughs> but, yeah. I just kind of turned my back on modeling. As much as I protested, I just like gave it up like, okay, I'm doing this now, doing the acting. But it took me a year to get the next 
acting job. And at that point, I'd been out for so many auditions. That, that was never my strong point, auditioning. And so I had multitude of opportunity, but, you know, I'd wind up, you know, failing. And I uh, finally went on this appointment for a film called American Graffiti. I thought, well, gosh, maybe this time I'll dress up for the part. You know, maybe that'll work. Maybe he'll see me as the character. And so it was a little film. I had no idea what it was about. And I went into this this office building, and there was a little tiny, tiny office. And I was sitting out in the lobby, and I was dressed as a 1950s <laughs> kid in rolled-up jeans, saddle oxfords, a letterman sweater, and a, a, a class ring on a chain around my neck, hair pulled back in a ponytail, and other actors were there, and I was the only one in in character. And I was so mortified. And anyway, I go in to this room about the size of a, a large closet, and and there's George Lucas, there's a big desk, and there's me, and my back is basically against the wall. The place was that small. And, uh, you know, he was very quiet, uh, as George is, but, you know, I left, I was humiliated, and I called my manager, Pat McQueen, and said, well, I blew it again, you know, I dressed with the part, and nobody else, and Anyway, two couple of weeks went by. I'd managed to get a hold of a script for the film American Graffiti, and I realized, oh, you know, totally different thing than I thought it was. And I begged her to get me back in, please, please. And she said, well, once they see you and they, you know, that you've kind of been rejected, they don't want to see you again. And I said, please, you've got to get me back in. So I went back. She caught me. I don't know how she did it, but I went back in and I was dressed as myself and I met George Lucas and I did not bring up the fact that I'd been there and he didn't either. And we chit chatted. And then the next thing I know, they wanted me to do a screen test. That day arrived and I had my little scene memorized. It was where um, Toad is picking me up off the street, you know, and he tells me I look like Connie Stevens. And I said, well, I thought I looked like Sandra D. that one. And I go in, and there's like 200 actors there. It's like a cattle call audition. So there's so many parts. And the tension was high, and it just took forever. And finally, my name was called. And I go back into this little alcove at Dove Films, which was Haskell Wexler's commercial shooting studio. He shot a lot of commercials. It was really big in that world. Anyway, I go back in this alcove, and there's George Lucas, and I think Haskell was there. And then I meet Charles Martin Smith, and there's a, a park bench, and that's supposed to serve as the car. So I meet Charlie, and I realize that I'm way too tall, <laughs> and he's too short for me us to be together. I thought, this is not going to work. It just was, won't look right visually. And so, you know, I just kind of eh, give up. And I I don't even, I barely try, try. <laughs> you know, we're just chatting and doing the scene. And I'm not overdoing it or underdoing it. I'm just kind of doing it and knowing that I'm not going to get it. 
And uh, lo and behold, I got it. <laughs> it was like, what? <laughs> yeah, so I have had a lot of accidents. <laughs> and then from there, you know, I, we did that. We spent 28 nights, uh, 28 days and nights up in uh, Petaluma area. I think we were based out of San Rafael, but we shot in Petaluma. And Mel's was in San Francisco, California. And uh, it later got knocked down. 2020 hindsight, I best they wish they still had that place, but it's gone. And, uh, you know, it was great. We all stayed at the Holiday Inn and, you know, we worked at night. And when you had a day day off and you didn't have to shoot at night, you just kind of rested and stayed in your room and hung out with the other actors that didn't uh, work. Yeah, we all bonded together. It was a very intimate setting. Working at night is totally different than working at day, in the day. It's just quiet. Nobody's on the street except, you know, the film crew. It was great. Well, yeah, what was that experience like as far as working with Charles Martin Smith so much? I mean, you share your scenes with other people, but he was the primary person you're working with. You know, he's now a director. He does like animal children's films, kind of Disney style. He did Air Bud and and Dolphin's Tale. And he was very easy, and it was easy to believe him as Toad. You know, he had that flat top with the fender sides and, you know, the glasses, and they seemed to have a little overbite when he talked. And, you know, it was just great. He was really uh, easy to you know, work with and believe that he was this character. <laughs> and it was my character. Um, I had a lot of experience with cruising and and um, uh, drive-in restaurants because that's what we did in Fort Worth, Texas. We'd go from the Lone Star drive-in to Carlson's drive-in back and forth all night, just driving back and forth and uh, cruising around. So the story was very much something I could identify with, that that lifestyle, the teenage lifestyle, and the good guys and the bad guys and the street racing and, you know, burgers and sodas and making out and drinking liquor <laughs> and smoking cigarettes. So it was like something that I knew. The only difficult thing was it, I picked that dress Toad and uh, Charlie and I drove up to San Francisco in my Volkswagen and we broke down on the road and we had to get the engine overhauled on a Sunday in Santa Barbara. But we made it finally to San Francisco. We'd taken off about three in the morning and we made it up there about midnight. And there was before cell phones and all of that. And they're like panic because we were supposed to be in wardrobe. So Next thing I know, like at midnight, I'm trying on clothes and that blue stripey dress. I went, if this works, it didn't need any alteration. It fit perfectly hem-wise and and body-wise. And I said, this will do. I was so tired, so freaking tired. And so I said, I'd like a sweater with a chain guard. And I just was kind of creating this character on the fly. I was so lucky to have that sweater because when we shot up in the Bay Area, Petaluma and San Francisco, it was cold and foggy, even though we were shooting in the summer. So I did have that little sweater that saved me. And finally, I had to rely on some long john underwear because it was, I was always cold. Although we had to try to make it look like it was 
a hot, sultry evening, you know, and, you know, summertime and cruising and making out. It was really so cold. That was the only hardship. Was any of that hair yours or was that all a wig? That was a wig. And the hairdresser told me it was made out of yak's hair. So it would swell. that moisture or that foggy and it would just get bigger and bigger and we had to have a lot of pins holding it back plus it was split up the back because it was like a child's size wig it was so small so I don't know what kid would wear a wig that small but and that extreme with that much hair but anyway it was cut up the back and, <laughs> and then artfully smooshed around in the back so you wouldn't see the the big cut up the back but yeah it was a, it, it helped keep me warm it was like a hat really and it really showed up you know in the dark so and the hairdresser said you want a blonde wig it'll really show up in the dark and I said okay what was it like for you to revisit that character and be her again in in the sequel it was great you know i the character is basically me <laughs> So it wasn't hard. It wasn't like I was playing the hunchback of Notre Dame or someone with cancer or anything. You know, so it was a fun character, lighthearted, not a difficult role to play. But uh, Deb, the character Debbie had kind of moved on and she was a hippie in Haight-Ashbury. And that was something else I did, like in New York. That's <laughs> was kind of the lifestyle I was leading in New York, you know, as a model. So with that kind of fashion. So it was like, it was a lot of fun, really, really nicely written. And, uh, you know, George Lucas, I had called him and I said, why don't we like pick this story up? And, you know, I pitched him like, let's, you know, see what these characters are doing. And then I guess he got a script made and hired a director and, you know, we went for it. And then after that, I thought, oh, he's amenable to my suggestions. Uh, when he was going to do Star Wars, I said, how about me for a character in Star Wars? He said, oh, we're not going to have any graffiti people in that movie. And he hires Harrison Ford. So he lied just to get me off the phone, I guess. What was it like working with Bill Norton as a director as opposed to George Lucas? It was great. It was great. Easy. You know, no problem. And he wrote the script. B.W. Bill W. Norton, something like that. But yeah, he wrote it and he got to direct it. Lucky him. So I imagine being in American Graffiti probably should have opened a lot of doors for you. It did. I was going to do the uh, report to the commissioner, but I had gone to South America and they had brought, uh, there was a film festival there and they had brought down people from. American Graffiti, um, Fat City, Jeff and I went, and all the graffiti people. And there was a big film festival there. Susan Terrell and all kinds of people were there in Cartagena, Colombia. And I had gone to the Board of Health and said, you know, what kind of shots do I need? And he said, well, you're just going to need a smallpox. And so I got this really, I uh, got a smallpox shot in the shoulder uh, upper arm and it really took I mean it was inflamed so I go all the way down to South America with this arm that was so red and 
seems like when you have a sore on your arm, everyone pats you on that arm. I mean, it got hurt constantly. But anyway, Board of Health guys did warn me, said, watch out. There's hepatitis down there. Watch out for anyone with yellow eyes. Anyway, I'm in the shower, and I brought my own food. Everybody laughed at me. I brought peanut butter and bread, and I did not want to get sick because I had this movie. And I'd done the research for called Report to the Commissioner, John Frankovich. So I was very careful, brought peanut butter, and everyone else is eating all the local food and enjoying life. And I'm like the weird person just, you know, eating my own stuff and, you know, just a real party pooper about it. And uh, I remember I was in the shower and uh, water went on that wound. And I thought, uh-oh. Then I thought, nah. Well, two weeks later, I came down with uh, infectious hepatitis, which is hepatitis A, and I lost the movie. I had to go to the hospital, and I had to think of every... And it was also the time that I was nominated for the Academy Award. And I remember going, looking in the mirror that night of the awards, thinking... Wow, you kind of got a nice tan there, you know? But I guess really I was turning yellow. And I go to the awards and I had not, never been so kissed and hugged. And once I got admitted to the, I was having terrible stomach pains after that. Maybe it was more than two weeks after I got back from South America. But anyway, I was at, uh, Dantana's restaurant and I was with a friend and he said, wow, it kind of sounds like you got hepatitis, you know, cause I was having, every time I ate it, my stomach would hurt really high up. So I go to the doctor and, um, he looks me over and I knew something was up when he told me to, that I'm going to have to put you in the hospital right now and you need someone to come pick you up. And when he put a uh, Kleenex over over the phone, and I call my manager, Pat, I was admitted to the hospital, like, right then and there, and I was two weeks in the hospital and two weeks in bed after that, and I begged the film production company, please, please wait for me, please, and they couldn't, of course, and they had to quickly replace me, and they got Susan Blakely, and I later went to watch the the movie, and there she was in my wardrobe and everything. I was like, oh, boo. That was why the career kind of faltered after American Graffiti. That was because I got sick. Bill Norton went to film school with Gloria, and so he was, he was a friend. He actually went on because when... Uh, after we did American Graffiti and, and when George was wanting to do a sequel, in those days, sequels were sort of more looked down upon until Francis made the Godfather sequel. And so we said, well, we really don't want to do a sequel. And so we suggested Bill and uh, he did the sequel to American Graffiti, more American Graffiti. I think. What was that like seeing your characters live on in a little bit of a, a different way from the way that you had handled them in the first movie? Well, it was strange. We didn't see it for a long time just because we were doing other things. So um, we saw it later, and uh, it definitely had a different tone, but 
George also wanted that, and he George loved the idea of shooting in different formats depending on where and the you know uh, what the timeline was and whether it was documentary and so forth. So those were really George's ideas, and I think in a way George wanted this sequel to be more like the sequel to The Godfather, which was sort of uh, darker than the first one. When you're making Messiah of Evil, you said that that was more like 71 that it was originally coming out? Yes. No, it was 71 when we shot it. When you shot it, okay. Yeah. And then when are you working on American Graffiti? About the same time, actually. We were... um, we were we started working on American Graffiti. I'm trying to think. We shot that in '71, and I think Graffiti was shooting maybe in '72. Graffiti, we started it actually. I mean, we started talking about it. George was shooting THX, and um, he had one scene that he was shooting here in Los Angeles, and the the scene uh, in the White Psych where the the um, Nazi robot cops were torturing um, Bobby Duvall. Um, and I remember we were watching and actually <laughs> we're using cattle prods and so forth. And Joe said, you know, Francis said I should do something that's more funny. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yeah, I can see why. And, and uh, he said, I'd love to do something about rock and roll. And he had made a couple of... Um, one or two student films about sort of rock and roll. One was about a real DJ and uh, here in Los Angeles. So um, we started talking about it. And he said, why don't we, you know, do it about all of our high school years? Since Gore and I had both grown up in Los Angeles and had different variety of car experiences at the same time. But George is actually a year older, I guess. So that's when we started talking about it. And I guess we were writing it at that period, whenever he was shooting THX, I forget. It's probably about the same time we were. Sh- yeah, I, I, I forget. I forget when he. I'd have to look up the when he was shooting THX. Would have been the beginning of American Graffiti. How mapped out was it? How how much of these characters were there? And I mean, because it's a, it's an interesting plot, especially the way that you're cutting cross cutting between all these different stories. Well, there there weren't any. We started thinking about characters we liked. George had characters that he liked in um, in in high school, and and had the you know our sort of archetypal characters of the of the hot rodder and the the nerd and so forth. But there wasn't anything, and we started putting cards up on a bulletin board, uh, scene by scene, and and coming up with the main characters. Then there was two influences that we also brought. It was the idea of the the old play La Ronde, uh, where people are, it goes from character to character because people are actually spreading syphilis. But that and also the idea that it was all one night, which at first sounded like a really great idea, but it was very hard for George to shoot because of lighting. Um, and then... Uh, we showed a movie to George and to Francis, who was the producer, um, called Evie Loney, the Fellini film, which is about older guys in a small Italian 
town who feel stifled and are they going to leave or not? And they have adventures. So that was influential too. Did you write, okay, here's the Milner story. Here's the toad story and write all of those and then try to push them together. Or were you writing it kind of the way that we end up seeing it as far as the fragmentation of these and crossing back and forth? Well, no, we sort of knew the arc of all the different stories, but George was really doing it. He was editing it before it was shot. So, I mean, he really he really knew where all the scenes would go. And in fact, he had his wish list of music about, you know, what would play in that scene. Although, you know, Universal, which earlier, well, which almost to the end had little faith in the movie, they didn't always give him the amount of money he needed for the songs. If a particular song was too expensive, he had to come up with another one. After that, of course, it became very expensive to buy, you know, source music for movies because it was a, it was such a hit. And uh, so that record people asked for a lot more money than they were. But there were times when George said, no, they, I can't do it. It's $150 too much for that song or something. You know, it's silly. All right, I have to get in the weeds when it comes to this movie because there's something that has always been on my mind and that I've always wanted to know, and so I'm going to go right to the, the horse's mouth. There's a scene with Lori and Steve in the car, and he's trying to uh, have her have sex with him, and he says something like, you know, don't get so righteous with me after all that stuff you said about watching your brother. What is going on there? Well, that's exactly what I said to George, because George put that in, and I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> and and I, what it is is that she had watched her brother masturbate, but it's very different. I mean, it's very difficult to, to take that away from what she's saying. So you, you really don't know what she's talking about, but that supposedly is what she's talking about. But it was one of those moments where you go, George, that's kind of odd. The same thing when we heard in Indiana Jones in the first one that he had raped a 13-year-old girl. We were saying, we were saying George, wait a minute. Are you serious? He's, he's raped. Occasionally, George gets kind of kinky. Yeah, I had read those uh, the transcriptions of the uh, story conferences with uh, he and Steven Spielberg and uh, Larry Kasdan. And yeah, yeah. When he's just like, oh yeah, and she's she's thirteen, she's fourteen, and he's thirty, and I'm just like, whoa, what are you doing there? <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it was strange. Yeah, I had to say it was funny you mentioned that line because I always have it. What what was that? <laughs> okay, I'm glad it's not just me. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> Those story conferences about raiders. They had a lot of ideas that ended up being in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And I'm curious, what was your process as far as did he come to you and say, oh, yeah, here's some ideas? Or uh, what was that like writing that movie? It was wonderful because they were strong enough at that point that we didn't have to listen to the studio or anything. So we went up to San Francisco and, and sat by George's. By then he had a house with a swimming pool sat with George and Steve and just came up with whatever crazy ideas. And some of those ideas were leftovers. Like they said, we, you've got to, they told us we had to figure out a way to get this life raft 
stupid life raft scene where they jump out of a plane in a in a life raft and end up going down the river or something. That and then they also had a um I think they had the mine car chase scene. And I don't know if that was from the other film or not, but they had that idea. Those were the two that I can remember. I mostly remember the life raft and then I think maybe the the Chinese guys at the beginning. Like the oh, we'll open in a club kind of thing, but that's about it. Oh no, but- they no, Steve had that idea. Steve Steve wanted it to start the movie, you know, with in an entirely bizarre way, which I thought was great, you know, as a Busby Berkeley kind of opening into it. And uh, and he thought his wife to be would be the perfect girl to do it. Well, you know, it, it goes back to the family affair thing, I guess. <laughs> I, I am curious too. When was it discussed that we would move the timeline to be earlier than the first film? This was the first time I ever remember the term prequel ever being used. I didn't even realize was it a prequel. I didn't. Re- oh wow! wow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. The I. Oh, I'm trying to remember if the first one takes place in 38 or 39. But yeah, this. I think it takes place like two years before Raiders does. And I remember hearing something like, oh, well, we didn't want to have the same bad guys. And it's like, well, there are other bad guys than just Nazis in the world. I, you know. Oh, well, no, that was a big thing. They were worried about bad guys. And they, they tried for a long time to set it in other places, and like Africa. And Africa is really problematic when it comes to bad guys. Yeah, so, so it was problematic. And because they wanted it to be a sort of, earth-shattering thing again it was coming up with a with a large evil in a remote location so when it got to india is when we really got interested because we collected indian miniature paintings and we knew a lot about india and so we said well you know india is great and you know let's do that and uh although at one point i said you know guys i'm not sure that India is going to love this movie. Um, And they said, uh, you know, are you going to have any problems shooting it there? And they said, no, no, you know, we're George and Steve. And, you know, (laughs) so then I got a call. I said, Jesus, they're not going to let us shoot in India. And so it was shot in Sri Lanka instead so they can make fun of Indians. And then later on, I got a call after the movie had come out. I got a call from the head of the uh, South Asian department of the L.A. County Museum of Art, and we we had collected Indian miniature paintings and had a very important collection. But it was the head of the department. He called me. He said he was in uh, Sri Lanka, and there was a monsoon outside, so he was stuck in the hotel, and he was watching Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And he said, really, this is the most offensive movie I have ever seen. How could you be? (laughs) And so he went on, and I... And I said, gee, Dr. Powell, um, do you think the Indian art dealers won't deal with us anymore? And he said, are you kidding? They'll be lined up at your door. Yeah, that was our Indian thing. They weren't real happy with the monkey brains and things like that. Yeah, yeah. You also collect uh, Japanese art, too. Is that right? Yeah, we our two major collections were we had collected Indian miniature paintings, and uh, we sold that collection at, on auction at uh, Sotheby's. And then we started collecting 
Japanese photography because uh, a couple of reasons, but one of which was Japanese movies, which we loved. And also they have a real history of photography. And uh, also Gloria was an early eBay adopter and uh, started collecting hand-tinted Japanese postcards. So then we decided to get the the photographs they were really based on. And uh, we sold that collection last year before Gloria passed away to um, the Freer-Sackler galleries at the Smithsonian. And they have a large Asian collection. So those were our two main things. And we got to go with George and Steve and George and Francis to um, Japan to watch um, Kurosawa shooting Kagamusha, which was really interesting. Yeah, it was great. He was involved too, or, or maybe both of them. Weren't they both involved with the Mishima as well? I don't think so. They were certainly involved with Kagamusha because it wasn't being made if they if George and Steve hadn't put their names on it as executive producers and they helped raise I think additional financing or something but the way the movie got made was because they said they would come on as producers Paul's film I don't think they had anything to do with it Right, we're back and we're talking about more American graffiti. You'll hear more from Candy Clark on our upcoming Man Who Fell to Earth episode and the rest of the interview with William Hike on the Messiah of Evil episode. So keep your eyes peeled for those. So what else do we want to talk about when it comes to more American graffiti? I mean, it's an unusual sequel to me and one that gets shit on a lot. And I don't know if it needs as much shit as it got. I mean, you kind of summed it up earlier, Trevor, when you're like, it wasn't as bad as I thought it could be. And that's kind of like what most sequels are. I think it's like the rare, the rare sequel where you're like, oh, wow, that was as good, if not better than the original. I don't think it deserves to get shit on, but it won. In some cases, I'm like, does this really need to exist? It's kind of like American Graffiti Mm. was a nice... I mean, except for not having epilogues for the female characters. I thought the American Graffiti had a nice bookend to it. We know what happens to the characters, but some people may wonder, do we need to see how it happens? I mean, do we need to really even know how it happens? We just kind of let our imaginations kind of see, like, what's going on here. Yeah, I think it's very much a slice of life thing. You know, you've got that snapshot of 1962 in Modesto, California, and it's kind of hermetically sealed around that. Yeah, we find out a little bit of what happens to some of the characters afterwards in a um, crawl at the end of it, but it didn't It didn't really need the sequel. I think maybe the sequel was a way of being a bit of a cash cow that they were trying to make a bit more money after Star Wars hit so big, so they were, they put it out there. They were willing to invest three million in it. It made a lot more than that in the box office. Yeah, it, it is a bit superfluous. So, which is better, this or the color of money? It's, it's all in the way that you use it, Mike. Nice. Uh, you're welcome. <laughs> I don't know. At least the color of money didn't it win Best Picture? Yeah, I like the color of money because it's great to watch Paul Newman act rings around Tom Cruise. It's Martin Scorsese, so I'm I'm kind of obligated to enjoy it. Hating anything Martin Scorsese is almost blasphemous to my. Like speaking of Academy Awards, I was kind of fascinated that the only nominee of all the actors in American Graffiti 
to get nominated was Candy Clark, which I thought was interesting. I mean, not not to, not to say that she was bad. She was really good. I mean, she deserved it. I mean, she played it exceptionally well. But it's like there's a lot of great performances, and Candy Clark you thought was the better of all of them. Okay. I think sometimes with the Academy Award nominations, there are so many good roles in a particular category. You may get a whole bunch of really good Best Actress nominees there. And so something that's really good, but not quite to that standard falls through. And again, with Best Supporting Actress or something like that, that may have been one of the ones that was drawn to people's attention because there might not have been a stronger field in that particular category as in some other years. That's a good point, yeah. She's still working, which is great. Um, it's always good to see Candy Clark in film. Of course, her choices sometimes can be a little interesting, like Cool as Ice. But you got Q the Winged Serpent as well. She was good in that. American Girl, like, I, is one of those movies that like every actor in that film is an actor I follow to this day. Like, I like yeah. to know what it, it's. It's always whenever I see an actor from American Graffiti in another film, I always kind of smile a bit because oh, that's good. I that's cool. They're in this film. I would like to see Charles Martin Smith do more acting, but unfortunately, he's, he's more behind the camera now. Like Ron Howard, yeah. The last thing I remember seeing Charles Martin Smith in, and I didn't see the movie, but I was watching a review of it. It was Left Behind 3. He's He has like a small part at the beginning of the film with Louis Gossett Jr. before I think their car gets attacked or something. I don't quite remember all of it. It was from a, I was watching Diamanda Hagen's review, and that's like, wait a minute, Charles Martin Smith is in a Left Behind movie? What universe am I in? On general principle, I won't watch a Left Behind movie. I remember him being in Fringe when that was on. But yeah, mostly now he's doing more directing stuff, which is kind of a shame because, I mean, I I really like him. I mean, one movie that I would love to do sometime is Never Cry Wolf. I love him in that movie. I love the direction of that movie. Everything about that film just really does it for me. And yeah, it, I was amazed too, looking at Charles Martin Smith, little Charles Martin Smith, how built he is in American, more American <laughs> graffiti. Like when he's walking around with no shirt on in that football game, I was just like, well, you got a little smoking body there, Charles Martin Smith. Be proud. <laughs> Show that off. Smear yourself with mud. You look fantastic. Well, he's in Vietnam. He can't exactly look like Steve Rogers pre-Captain America here. <laughs> when he does act, it's more like character. Like, he's yeah. in for maybe a couple scenes, then he's gone. He doesn't really do leading stuff anymore, which is a shame because he's a terrific actor. It's the same with Cindy Williams. You don't really see much of her anymore. No, which is kind of a shame. Women of a certain age don't tend to get really great roles unless they're Meryl Streep or Helen Mirren or maybe Emma Thompson, yeah. Yeah, I remember telling... Speaking of Cindy Williams, I was telling you, Mike, this is the second episode I've been on, and it's another Cindy Williams film. And I was telling I was telling Mike last night, so what's my next episode going to be, Bingo? Well, now that a actual real version of The Creature Wasn't Nice is coming out, the director is actually releasing his cut of it. We might be able to talk Bruce about Kimmel, that yeah. one. I call dips on Cindy Williams films. Unfortunately, you won't be on The Conversation, which we're doing in November. I'm very sorry. I won't get to hear your uh, Red Red Robin goes Bob Bob Bobbin along version. So I'm oh Mike, I'll I'll get it to you eventually. I read her uh, autobiography a couple of years ago, and it is really good. I, she pulls out a lot of stops and just goes for it and talks about like how she really got the shaft when it came to Laverne and Shirley and the way that she was kind of unceremoniously dumped by that show. Um, but yeah, she was. Fantastic. Uh, I really like that autobiography, and then I've always liked her showing up and stuff. Yeah, she has a presence about her, a very 
yeah. sweet presence about her. Sweet but tough. And she could also play forthright. Yeah, tough. That's what I was thinking, yeah. Maybe they should do an older woman action film with her in it, you know, like a, or kids and grandkids get murdered and she goes on a rampage. Yeah, they're doing those badass movies with Danny Trejo and um, Danny uh, Danny Glover. They should put her in one of those. Why not? Her and Trejo in a rom-com. Oh, there you go. I would I would pay for that one. Yeah, yeah. Her and uh, her and uh, Scott Glenn in a rom-com. Yeah. And Sam Neill plays his brother. No, I was thinking Love, love Triangle, definitely, with um, Sam Elliott, yeah. I was thinking of a body swap comedy, but okay. Thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Terry, what is going on down under? Well, we've still got winter, which sucks, but um, I'm doing a YouTube channel called Terry Talks Movies, which shouldn't be too hard to find. I did a two-parter about the 10 Australian movies you need to see, and I'm doing a bit about the 1963 Astro Boy TV series later this week. And it's, it's a bit of fun. I'm, I'm kind of doing that. I'm still doing Paleo Cinema Podcast and Martian Drive-In Podcast alternating weekly. And, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. And now that I'm officially retired, I've got time to enjoy this kind of stuff and do the creative things I've always meant to do. And, Trevor, what's going on in your world? Well, I'm about to start rehearsals on a play called The Realistic Joneses performed at Stage 33 in Bellevue, and that will be on September 26th through the 20th. It's a really good show. If anybody's in the Washington State area or near Bellevue or Seattle, come check it out. Uh, tickets are only $10. Well, thanks again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Happy New Year! Yay! Everybody in the studio. If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.